turn with your turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Good morning and uh, Merry Christmas once again. I'd like to be the uh, first to officially uh, wish you a, a happy New Year as well. I would like to uh, to take you through uh, about uh, 50 years of the life of Abraham in the next 40 minutes, uh, a period of time in his life that I think is helpful for us as we think about entering this new year and uh, our own pilgrimage with the Lord. Uh, all of the Old Testament, certainly, but uh, especially Abraham, provides us with a picture, if you will, or an illustration of New Testament truth. And as we approach Genesis chapter 12 this morning, I'd like us to, to both look at the historical account that we find here, but also the historical implications or the implications that grow out of this historical account that relate to us as we approach our, uh, our life with God. Abraham's life is, uh, is all about progress in, uh, in spiritual growth. It's all about growing in faith. When we come to Abraham in the New Testament, who, by the way, is mentioned more often than any other Old Testament saint with the exception of Moses, we come to a man who's described as being uh, grown up in faith, uh, literally a hero of our faith. He's given more press in, in Hebrews chapter 11 than any other single Old Testament character. And yet, Abraham was not always like that. And when we find him in Genesis chapter 12, we find him as a, as a young man who is just learning to walk with God. Uh, we really have no record of, of Abraham's uh, early life. Uh, when we encounter him in Genesis chapter 12, he's being called by God to, uh, to follow him. He uh, receives this call. Stephen tells us in his sermon from Acts uh, 7, while he was in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was uh, that ancient city and the ancient country of Mesopotamia. It was not a primitive city by any means. It was a city of considerable wealth, uh, considerable culture. They had an extensive library and university there. But it was a dark city spiritually. It was a city that was committed to, uh, to pagan worship. They were... Uh, Worshippers of the uh, the moon god Nanar, uh, not to be confused with uh, Nanu Nanu. <laughs> um, and uh, Stephen tells us that while Abraham was there and was known at that time as Abram, while he was there, he too was a worshiper of the moon god Nanar. And uh, and yet God reached out to him. God took the initiative and uh, invited Abraham, or Abram, as it were, to, uh, to follow him. It reminded me uh, this week as I was looking at this passage of uh, Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The same was certainly true for, for Abram. As he was worshiping Nanar, God reached out to him and took the initiative. And as he reaches out, he uh, gives Abram both a command and a promise. The command is given in, in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, 
Leave your country, your people, and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. A threefold command, leave your country, your people, and your father's house. Now, Abram was, was a, a, an adult of probably in his late 20s, early, perhaps even mid-30s, when the word of the Lord came to him. Uh, he was a man uh, who was very likely successful, successful uh, businessman. Uh, and so to leave Ur and to leave the Chaldees would be to leave a very comfortable lifestyle behind. He likely had a home and land and considerable wealth by this time. He would have to leave behind all of those things, as well as his ambitions and dreams, uh, relationships with uh, several uh, that, uh, that stayed behind, as well as his reputation and his respect from others. But also, as we'll see as we uh, work our way through this passage, Abram also had to leave behind what uh, the Lord refers to here as your father's house. And I think that is a, uh, a reference to his dependence on the flesh, to his dependence upon his own natural resources, his intellect, his common sense, his ingenuity, all of those things that, that we would be quick to use in a time of, of, uh, of um, hard times, in a time of, of panic. We would be quick to... Uh, to draw upon them just as, uh, as Abraham, we'll see, was as well. It also struck me this week that, that this is really the same command that God gives to each of us to leave our, our country and our people and our father's household behind. We're called to, to set aside our own dependence upon the flesh and the natural gifts that God has given us and instead to lean upon him and to draw upon his resources, and to follow him wherever he wants us to go, even though at times that may be very, very frightening. Have you heard the, the call of God in your life recently? Has he ha- asked you to, to turn away from some, uh, from some form of darkness? Has he asked you to no longer depend on your natural self, but instead to depend on him? It's a very difficult call to respond to. It's a very difficult decision. And yet, as we'll see, Abraham had to learn that you can't enter the land of Canaan until you leave Ur behind. Now, for Abraham, the land of Canaan was much more than real estate. It was not simply a plot of ground that he would one day go to. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the land he was looking for or the city that he was looking for was a city whose foundations, uh, or a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. In other words, as Abram made his way into the land of Canaan, he realized that God had called him to do much more than occupy a, a piece of real estate. He called him into a relationship with himself. And as we make our way through this, this text this morning, I'd like to suggest that the land that God calls us to is intimacy with him, enjoying him, his character and his grace, getting to know him, settling into that relationship of dependence with God that Abram had been called to as well. Well, the command is followed by a, a threefold promise in verses 2 and 3. God says, I will make you into a great nation. 
I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram has promised to become a great nation, a great name, and a great blessing to all peoples. And we can, uh, we can reminisce over the, the annals of history and see how these, uh, these blessings uh, have, been, uh, uh, have been given. Uh, Abram became the father of the nation of Israel, a, indeed a great nation that uh, was given through him. Uh, his name was indeed blessed. Three of the world's religions today claim Abram as their father. In fact, you can't go anywhere in the world today uh, and mention the name Abraham without finding someone who's heard of him. And indeed, uh, all the, the world was blessed through him because through him Messiah came. And the Redeemer, whose birth we just celebrated this last week, was given through Abram. But I want you to notice that uh, in each of these blessings, or each of the, uh, the blessings that are promised, uh, Abram didn't have to do anything. God satisfied them all. All Abram had to do was obey God and follow him. And as Abram followed him, God blessed. And I think that's a wonderful picture of the Christian life as well. It's a picture of the way the spiritual life works as we simply respond to God's invitation to follow him, he blesses us and he uses us in the lives of others. Now, unfortunately, there's an interlude. Uh, Abram receives this, uh, this command and this promise, as I mentioned, uh, while he was in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, but he doesn't make an immediate trip to the land of Canaan. The interlude is recorded in chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Abram started his journey, but he stopped better than than halfway. Uh, Haran was a, a flourishing caravan city, approximately 500 and 50 miles or so northwest of, of Ur in uh, northern Mesopotamia, or what would today be known as, as Turkey. Uh, the city was given the name Haran, which literally means crossroads because it's set on the major thoroughfare from east to west, from, from uh, Nineveh to Carchemish, and from north to south down to, uh, to Babylon. And uh, it was a city much like the city of Ur. Uh, it was a booming metropolis. It was a city that was committed to worshiping the same moon god, Nanar. And a city where a young man could uh, find his, his way to make a, a very tidy profit. We don't know why Abram stopped there. We, we know that uh, Terah is referred to first here in verse 31 but probably because he was still the patriarch of the family. Abram was the reason that the family moved. Uh, he was the one who had received the call of God. But it's possible that they stopped there because it was very comfortable, because it was like the city that they had left before. It was part of their same culture, part of their same country. 
and therefore would be a, a comfortable place to live. Uh, the interesting thing is that when Terah stops, so does Abram. And for the next 30 to 35 years, Abram settles in the land of, of Haran. And there is very little difference, very little discernible difference between Abram and Abram's faith and Terah and Terah's faith. And I think this is a picture for us of that halfway house that we often stop at when we're not ready to, to follow God all the way. When we hear him ask us to do something and, and we want to turn away from that which he's asked us to turn away from, but we're not ready to go all the way yet. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, says that uh, God eventually sent Abram out of Haran and into Canaan. But the word that he uses, it's translated sent, literally means to draw out or to extrude one from a place. You see, Abram had become so comfortable, as perhaps as we often do, that God literally had to, to knock the slats out from under him. God had to do everything he could to get Abram to obey. God was calling and drawing, but God was also orchestrating circumstances that would lead Abram to obey. Well, how did he, uh, how did he get Abram to obey? Look at verse 32 of chapter 11. Terah lived 205 years, and then he died in Haran. You see, finally, when the old man was gone, Abram realized that it was time to leave his father's household. I think there's a lesson for us in that as well. I think that if we insist on depending on our own resources, sometimes God has to take them away before we will be willing to follow him completely. What are you depending on this morning? Are you depending on your health? Some of us have depended on our health before only to find that, that God has to, to remove our health before we're willing to follow him. Are you depending on your intelligence? Are you depending on your job, your savings, your relationships with others? What is it that you are leaning on? What is it that God might have to, to take away in order for you to see that, that he alone is enough in a uh, letter that I came across this last week, one believer describes the, uh, the agony, ag uh, agony that he had to endure as God was calling him out of Haran. He writes, After I became a Christian some 18 years ago, I failed to deal thoroughly with lust and covetousness. In time, I became self-deceived, proud and arrogant, Moreover, eventually God shouted upon the housetops that which I desperately tried to keep hidden. God finally let me go into alcoholism and sexual immorality, both of which were worse than I experienced before my conversion. Twice I went through the horror and hell of manic depressive psychosis in order that I might learn that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does God have to do to get your attention? What does God have to do to get mine? 
What does he have to take out of our lives before we're willing to follow him completely? What does he have to do before we're willing to stop depending on our own resources and start leaning wholly on him? Well, it took Abram 30 to 35 years to, uh, to come to the place where he would be willing to follow the Lord, but he finally did. And at the age of 75, he set out from Haran and made his way into the land of Canaan. And what a wonderful picture that is for us. What a wonderful reassurance that it doesn't matter how old we are, we can always follow the Lord. It doesn't matter how long we've resisted him we can always lay hold of his promises. Verse 4 of chapter 12. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and went, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. The Canaanites were there in the land, but the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev, literally south. Now Shechem was the first place that Abraham, uh, Abram camped for any length of time. Apparently he was so enthralled with what he saw there that he had to, to spend some time. Uh, Shechem and particularly this, uh, this region uh, of Shechem known as Moreh, uh, was a, a, a place of uh, Canaanite worship. There was a large shrine to, to Canaanite gods that existed there. And as Abram drew near to that, he became so overwhelmed by what he saw. I think he probably realized for the first time uh, the same thing that uh, Dorothy said to uh, Toto, uh, we're no longer in, uh, in Kansas. Abram recognized that this was indeed a very different place, a very frightening place. I think that's why the Lord appeared to him there and reassured him that this, was, this would indeed be the place that God would give to his offspring. The Lord comforted Abram, reassured him, and strengthened him. He put starch in his spine as Abram saw himself as a very tiny person in the midst of a large country surrounded by foreigners he saw that the God that he worshipped was a very large God, a very powerful God, a very great God. This was exactly what Abram needed to see and hear. And because of that, it says that uh, Moses writes that he built an altar there to the Lord and drew near to God. He worshipped God. We have no idea what that altar looked like, but but undoubtedly it was very small and, and insignificant in comparison to the large uh, pagan shrine that existed there. Nevertheless, Abram drew near to God and worshipped God. And from there, we're told that, that he travels some 20 miles south and, and sets up camp again. He sets up his little tent uh, between the cities of Bethel and the city 
of Ai, the city of Bethel, the city of Ai, and there too worships the Lord before this little altar. Now, this would have been right on the, the main thoroughfare, the north-south highway that uh, travelers would take, and it would be kind of the, uh, the I-84 of, of his day. If you can imagine going out to uh, I-84 today and finding uh, a pilgrim, a nomad, a wanderer, uh, pitched, having pitched his little tent and worshiping the Lord at an altar. That's what it must have looked like for Abram. That became the home base of his operations. From there, he traveled out and uh, explored the land uh, in uh, southern Canaan. I want you to see that what we have here, and particularly in verses 6 through 9, is more than simply an historical account of what happened in Abram's life. I think what Moses gives us here is a description of what life is like in the land. That is, in relationship with God, what life is like in the family of faith as believers. And I want to suggest four characteristics of of life in the land. First of all, life in the land is a life of continual choice. Abram camped between Bethel, which in Hebrew means the house of God, and the city of Ai, which in Hebrew means ruin or heap or destruction. And isn't that where we camp in this life? To put it in the words of Augustine, between the city of God and the city of man, ever looking one way or the other, either to the presence of God as we face difficulty in our life or to dependence upon our flesh and our own resources. Life in the land is a continual choice. Each day we have a choice to either turn to God in dependence upon him or to turn to self. It's always one or the other. But secondly, life in the land is a life of continual conflict. Verse 6, we're told that the Canaanites were there. And they were mighty. And they were strong. And they were easily overwhelming such a small tribe as as Abram brought with him. The Canaanites in the New Testament are used symbolically as a picture of the, uh, uh, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. It's what Paul refers to in Galatians 5 as, as the battle that, that rages within us. The Canaanites are named for us in Ephesians 5. They're given the names lust, envy, greed, jealousy, impatience, anger, and the list goes on. You see, these are the enemies that we must face each day in the land. These are the enemies that have to be defeated in our life and must be destroyed if we're going to enjoy God's presence, God's richest blessings. And thirdly, life in the land is a life of continual cleansing. You see, the secret to Abraham's Spiritual life was this little altar that he, he carried around with him. And wherever he camped, he set it up. And he drew near to God. And this altar was, a, was certainly a place of worship, but first and foremost, it was a place of cleansing. And that's what the spiritual life is like. It's a, it's a life of drawing near to the cross each day. And, 
asking God and thanking God for forgiveness. And then moving through life because we have been forgiven, because we have been cleansed, and because we have been strengthened by the Lord to be a blessing to others. It's interesting, Abram um, never stayed in any one place for very long. He lived as a pilgrim. And I think from that we can see the fourth characteristic of life in the land. It's a life of continual transience. He was always living in a temporary residence. He never stopped for long. In fact, the only piece of ground that he ever bought was a, a field in a cave in Machpelah that he would later use as a burial ground for, for both he and, and his wife because he knew that God had called him to much more than a piece of real estate. He knew that God, God had called him to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And you see, that's what God has called us to as well. We come to the end of a year like this and, and we so easily want to, uh, to take stock of, of our successes and our failures. And all too often, as we list our successes, we think of them in terms of, of accomplishments. We think of them in terms of possessions. We think of them in terms of riches that have been amassed. We may think of them in terms of real estate. And yet God has called us to a life of transience, a life as pilgrims to walk with him each day in dependence upon him, allowing him to be our provider, looking forward to that city whose architect and builder is God. Well, this would be a wonderful place to stop. Here we have Abram, man of faith, camped beside the altar, worshiping the Lord. We ought to just say, amen, let's go home. Let's, uh, Let's pray for the faith of Abram. But uh, fortunately, the the record doesn't stop here. As uh, Howard Hendricks is fond of saying, when when the scriptures paint the portraits of biblical characters, the scripture paints them warts and all. And as we'll see, Abram was both a man of faith and also a man of fear. Beginning in verse 10, it says, Now, there was a famine in the land, that is the land God had called him to. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, Honey, (laughs) I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see me, they will say, Hmm, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but let you live. Hey, dear, I've got a great idea. Let's say you're my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Now, ancient Palestine, much like the western United States, depended uh, solely on rainfall. Without it, uh, severe famines uh, would uh, would come upon the land. Egypt represented a place of safety because of the the Nile and the Nile Delta. It was a uh, a place that was uh, much more fertile, 
and much more given toward uh, uh, providing uh, grazing land for Abram's herds and food for his family than Canaan at a time uh, such as this. And so this move south seems very reasonable. Uh, if, if, if we were to, to find ourselves in similar circumstances, we might think with our minds, we might think with the ingenuity, as we might put it, that God gave us to think with, and we might make the same decision that Abram made. And yet the problem is that God had called Abraham, Abram to stop depending on his ingenuity, to stop depending on his own common sense, to leave his father's house behind and to depend on his God. You see, God never said to Abram, follow me and I'll take you to a land where you'll starve. He said, follow me and I'll take you to a place where you'll be blessed. And yet Abram, much like us, probably thought that God probably needs some help this time. After all, it does say in the scriptures, God helps those who help themselves. And here Abraham is the model of it. Well, he turns south and, and makes this trip a little over 200 miles to, uh, to Egypt. Plenty of time to think. Plenty of time for his faith, which had turned to fear, to become even greater fear. And as Abram draws near to Egypt, he begins to look around him and he sees this beautiful woman with whom he has spent most of his adult life. Sarai was 65 years of age at this time. We have no idea what she looked like, but apparently was a very striking woman, beautiful woman. Peter, in in his little epistle, refers to her as a woman who possessed the unfading beauty of a gentle spirit. But evidently, she was quite a looker on the outside as well. And uh, Abram recognized that his life might be just as much in danger heading into Egypt if he doesn't invent a a story to describe who she is. And so he uh, conspires with her to tell this half-truth. Actually, she was his half-sister. Sarai and Abram had the same father, but they had different mothers. And yet, as we'll see from the account, a half-truth from God's perspective is the same as a a full-blown lie. And as they draw near, Abram asks his wife to put her own life at risk to save his own. Verse 14 says, When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they promised her to Pharaoh, or they praised her to Pharaoh, rather. And when Pharaoh's, excuse me, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. And then one of the greatest words in all of the Bible comes next. But, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife 
and everything he had. You see, when the Pharaoh's servants take, uh, first took notice of Sarai, they were struck as well by her beauty. And she was taken into his household to be one of his many wives, to be a part of his harem. And Abram, we're told, is blessed because of it. He receives livestock and servants. And in verse 2 of chapter 13, we're told that he receives silver and gold as well. It hardly seems fair, does it? Here, Abram asks his wife to sin. And for some reason, she complies. And because of it, Abram is rewarded. But the Lord wouldn't uh, allow it to stop there. You see, the Lord was unwilling to idly stand by. He moved to protect Sarai. By the way, just as he would have moved to protect Abram if he would have stayed in Canaan. The Lord moves to protect Sarai. We're not told what uh, diseases were inflicted upon the Pharaoh and his uh, household, but apparently they were sufficient to get the point across. The Pharaoh understood that the reason why he had come down sick was because he had taken this man's wife to be a part of his, uh, his home. And so the Pharaoh says to Abram, What have you done to me? In other words, he, he recognized that Abram was at fault. Can you, can you imagine the shame and the humiliation that Abram must have experienced as an unbeliever, a pagan, speaks truth to him and acts more righteously than the chosen man of God. I think here as well there's more than simply an historical account. I think there's a great lesson about the spiritual faith, about the spiritual life, the life of faith. You see, there's one thing missing in Egypt. Do you know what it is? It's the altar. There's no mention of it. There's no mention of an altar. There's no mention of a tent. Abram's living in luxury, and he's not leaning and depending upon the Lord. And I want to suggest four consequences that Abram experienced and that we experience as well when we move away from the altar. First is this. Moving away from the altar almost always results in sin. For Abram, his dependence upon the flesh rather than God resulted in hypocrisy and deceit. And when we cease to depend on the Lord, when we move away from the altar, the same becomes true of us. We begin to depend on our own flesh, and our own flesh gets us into trouble. Our own flesh reaps the... uh, the, the sin that's described as the, uh, the Canaanites in our life, whether they be lust, whether they be envy, covetousness, falsehood, sin is the result. That's why Jesus invited those with whom he spoke. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. How do you feel when a famine comes into your life? tired, concerned, weary, and burdened. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Draw near to the altar and allow me to satisfy your your need. 
See, we need to draw near to God when we feel fearful. And we need to seek Him when we're tempted to panic. There's a second result, though. Moving away from the altar results in putting those that we love at risk. Now, we can see how Sarai was put at risk because of Abram's sin. But if we, if we continue to read the story of Abram, we'd find out that in, in chapter 13, Lot was also put at risk when he's given the choice to choose what land he wants to go to. He chooses the well-watered plains of the Jordan. And as it's put in, 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 verse, uh, or in chapter 13, he chose them because they were like the land of Egypt. You see, he had grown comfortable in an affluent society as well. He had been rewarded as well living in Egypt. And so he wanted to experience more of that. Lot's life was put into danger as well. It's really foolish of us to think that sin, that our sin does not affect other people's lives. It simply is not true. Our families need us and our friends need us to walk with God and to obey him. Here's a third result. Moving away from the altar results in counterfeit blessings. You see, you look at at the blessings that Abram received and you think, wow, how neat. He becomes rich because he disobeyed God. Hmm, would that work for me? And we see those who don't follow the Lord and we see the way that they prosper and we wonder, how can this be fair? What we have to realize, though, is that there were blessings that Abram missed out on. Yes, he received material wealth, but this came at the expense of spiritual growth in his life. It came at the expense of, of grace. God didn't want Abram, Abram to grow in shame. He wanted him to grow in grace. And though Egypt provided food for his family and rich grazing land for his herds, it also provided greater problems. Friction arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, and then between Abram and Lot in chapter 13 because of these blessings. And you remember in, in verse uh, 16 it says that he received men servants and maid servants. Who do you suppose one of the maidservants was? A young woman by the name of Hagar, who eventually became greater problem for Abram. Moving away from the altar results in counterfeit blessings. And unfortunately, we suppose oftentimes that God wants us to be comfortable. And thus we choose to avoid difficult circumstances. God doesn't want us to be comfortable. He wants us to be dependent. And through our dependence, he wants us to become more like him. And that means that we dare not shy away from pain and trouble. But we ought to look at pain and trouble as opportunities to grow. Lastly, a fourth result. Moving away from the altar neutralizes our witness. And it renders us 
ineffective for the kingdom. You remember, Abram was called to be a blessing to those with whom he came into contact. And yet he was anything but a blessing in Egypt. He was a curse to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's household. And likewise, when we cease to to center our lives on God, when we choose to depend on our own resources rather than His, we fail to see the opportunities that He provides for us to be a blessing to others. We become far too concerned with our own needs and with our own priorities. And our agenda replaces God's. And so... Abram learned a very, very painful lesson, a humiliating lesson, but a very important lesson. Moving away from the altar leads to frustration, to shame, and to humiliation. Tarred and feathered, Abram is uh, escorted with family to the border. He's run out of town on a rail. He's told to return from whence he came. And Interestingly, he's sent back to Canaan before the famine is over. He's sent back to try again. To try again to learn what it means to trust God. In chapter 13 it says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, that is to southern Canaan, with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to that place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. That phrase, uh, from place to place, suggests that it was a, a long journey back. And I don't think it was long because... Because it took a long time to get there. I think it was long because Abram needed the time to think. He meandered as he went back because he knew that what awaited him was an altar. An altar at which he would need to be cleansed once once again. And so he had some issues he needed to discuss with God. There was probably also opportunity on that long journey for, for he and Sarah to interact over what had happened. There's an interesting uh, uh, absence of of dialogue between the two of them. And I suspect uh, that there was probably quite a lengthy silence for a while. But Abram finally returns to that place between Bethel, the house of God, and Ai, the, the place of ruin. He returns to a tent to be a pilgrim again. He returns to an altar to be cleansed. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. And praise God. The Lord is there waiting for him. God is not put off by Abram's sin, his disobedience. He's waiting with open arms for Abram to draw near, just as the Lord waits for us to draw near to Him. He stands waiting to embrace us with His love and His forgiveness. And when we return to the altar, 
we're truly changed. We are truly changed. This morning, in closing, we're going to enjoy remembering the Lord by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare to partake of the the bread and the cup, I want to ask you to consider this question. Where are you right now in your pilgrimage with God? Where are you at? Are you still in the city of Ur, that place of death and darkness, the land into which you were born? Is God calling you to leave your country and your people and your father's house? Is he asking you to stop depending on your own resources and to trust him instead? And if so, what, what inhibits you from drawing near to the land of promise? What stops you from coming close to the altar? Or perhaps this morning you're still in the, the city of Haran, that, that halfway house. Perhaps you've heard God's voice and you've heard him call you and you've turned away from something and you've moved toward him, but you've stopped short of going all the way. Or are you in the land of Egypt? Have you turned away from the altar, perhaps to, to avoid the fear or the pain of, of some difficulty, some famine in your life? Have you lost your sense of confidence in God's commitment to provide for you? Are you instead trusting in, in your own resources to meet the demands of life? And have you ceased being a blessing to others? If so, you need to return to Bethel. You need to return to the altar. Or perhaps this morning you're enjoying the fullness of of your walk with God. You're camped in the land of promise beside the altar, enjoying his forgiveness. If you are, stay there. Stay there.